Hey, and welcome back to Dorm Room Histories, the history of China. Now, before I get into the history today, though, I just wanted to update you all on the website, which I mentioned a few episodes ago. But the fact is, maintaining two separate shows that focus on completely different things in regards to the history, and yes, shows that are even more different in terms of format, I really do need a home base. Because I can't just be updating you all exclusively in the opening minutes of all my episodes and occasionally on my Instagram stories. Which, by the way, shoot me a follow, Eric underscore Andreessen. So, with that, I will be accelerating the building of this new website. I've been a little slow on it, but look, I think this will be out pretty soon. But yeah, I think the website will be done within a week or so, and I'll update you guys more on that. I hope everybody is staying safe in these trying times. Lastly, be sure to check out awfulcloth.com. Awful, like, wow, that's awful, and the word cloth.com. It's a new and actually quite hype clothing brand, if I do say so myself, and I had the pleasure of once being co-workers with the founder. It's seen on Barstool and even with some hype house member someone's TikTok. Look, the fact is I do Chinese history, not Chinese social media, so pardon me. Although I don't think many 15-year-olds listen to my show, so I assume I will not get too much flack for it, but who knows. Nonetheless, last week we handled quite a lot, I know. And well, I suggest you strap in your seatbelt and hold on because, well, the Joe is truly, at least in my own opinion, is where you start seeing the ancient China many of you thought you would see in the very first place. Warring states, philosophy, intrigue, and the birth of some of the most influential people and ideas in, no, not just ancient Chinese history, but in world history. We saw how the Shang, just like the dynasty before them, eventually slipped from their virtuous start and into an ignominious end. Di Xin, the Krupper King, was the last straw, and he had finally lost the mandate of heaven for the entire dynasty. And, well, with that, someone else received it and started a new dynasty. And so far, we've only had two real dynastic changes. But it's important to note the mandate of heaven, because that is something we will hear throughout this entire story. It was, well, the just bellum for dynastic change, meaning that it was in itself the justification for killing and overthrowing a divinely granted ruling dynasty. The mandate of heaven and the loss of it or gaining of it will spurn on endless dynastic change and will push some truly incredible figures into the spotlight of history as they try and find new ways to obtain it, but also act upon it. And let me be blunt, they're going to find a lot of different ways to do that. But it will also spurn on political and philosophical thinkers for a millennia to come. And really, I promise, lastly before I dive in, one thing I won't fully explain this second, but something to at least keep in the back of your head is that the ancient Chinese were spiritualistic, and they were very stoic and very philosophical, yes. But they weren't really religious in our Western sense. As we've seen, though, the early dynasties are very shamanistic. But as we will see, the mandate of heaven is more of a blueprint for being virtuous than it is about directly appeasing the Lord above, or Zeus, or Jupiter. You catch my drift? Nonetheless, King Wu of the Zhou state has established the new Zhou dynasty in the year 1046 BC, and it would be the longest dynasty ever, though it was not lacking in the conflict department. And so, without further ado, The History of China, Episode 6 the beginning of the powder keg. 
in history books, the Zhou is not usually defined as, well, just the Zhou dynasty. Instead, it's broken up into the Western Zhou period and then the Eastern Zhou period. A Western and Eastern switch up in an empire? I've never heard of that before. And the Western half being overrun by barbarians? What a crazy story that totally didn't happen somewhere else in world history. All jokes aside, though, King Wu ceremoniously kept the capital at Anyang, which is where, well, the Shang had just been. But in reality, he was constructing a new one for his palace, and his administration sort of hunkered down at the nearby region of Hao. King Wu had the mandate of heaven, and the dawn was very bright for him. Except, well, it wasn't. Because just three years into his reign, in 1043 BC, King Wu of Zhou dies. We don't really know how he dies, but it was, from all we can gather, a natural death that was not caused by foul play. Really, just an unfortunate death. Look, overthrowing an entire dynasty and thus its grip on a nationwide power system is dangerous. You need to quickly and effectively instill your own leadership and authority. And the one thing that can't happen is the virtuous leader that led the dynastic overthrow dying. And what happened is that the virtuous leader that led the dynastic overthrow died. King Wu had taken the reins earlier than planned because his father, as we heard about a couple episodes ago, King Wen, died himself. But then King Wu died himself, and well, his son, the next and true rightful leader, was just a small child. Well, shoot. That's essentially the worst thing that could have happened. A succession battle before the dust of war had even settled was not ideal. But a quick plan was thrown together. Many, if not all, of those in the court agreed that King Wu's son, King Cheng, was, yes, the rightful ruler, but they all agreed, yes, he was too young. But to maintain the rightful succession, King Cheng would, well, effectively be immediately crowned king. But he wouldn't rule like a king, because he would be controlled and aided by a regency council that was to be headed by the now-deceased King Wu's brother, the Duke of Zhou. But not everybody was happy with this, and there were probably some that were pretty jealous and concerned about this, and, well, yeah, they were. So several princes and other royal family members dubbed themselves the Three Guards and immediately got in cahoots with some remaining Shang Dynasty outliers and holdouts and fled with them eastward and prepared for rebellion. And to make matters worse for the new Zhou Dynasty, these three guards ended up getting several barbarian Dongyi tribes to join their banner. So the young King Cheng and his uncle, Duke of Zhou, consulted the oracle bones, and they read auspiciously they still had the mandate of heaven. And the Duke of Zhou informed the young King Cheng that, quote, I will take you east on campaign, end quote. And boy, did they ever campaign. The Zhou army under King Cheng and the Duke utterly crushed the rebellion. And this campaign to crush the rebellion had a litany of unintended but awesome side effects for the young Zhou state. And these effects would forever alter the history of China. In campaigning against the rebellion, the Duke of Zhou and the young King Cheng had marched 1,000 miles east all the way to the Shandong province and therefore the ocean. 
the regions of modern-day Beijing fell under dynastic rule for the first time, and the Jin region, which would later morph into the Han state, was conquered. Furthermore, the Ying, Lu, Qi, and Yan regions in the northeast and eastern parts of China all for the very first time fell under dynastic rule. And over the course of history, as you might have ascertained from the pre-Han states, these new regions would eventually be large, powerful, and influential regions in their own right later on down the road. With the rebellion crushed, barbarian tribes under heel, and endless new territory, Duke of Zhou countered Zhou's crisis of legitimacy by expounding the doctrine of the Mandate of Heaven, while at the same time still accommodating important Shang rituals. He's got to keep the people happy. He's got to steady the ship, and he formulated the Mandate of Heaven doctrine to counter any remaining Shang claims to a divine right of rule, and founded Luoyang, a city in modern-day China, as the eastern capital. And with that, and with a feudal system known as the Feng Jian, royal representatives and generals were given controlling powers in these new eastern regions. And in doing so, put these new, well, backwater regions on steroids and on HGH, and they would see them grow in power and sophistication at crazy rates. These were once barbarian states where nothing really was happening, and in just a few quick dynasties, some of these would become some of the most powerful places on Earth. Regardless, Duke of Zhou, acting as regent ruler, had stopped the dynasty from a fiery and quick end. He had gotten the Zhou dynasty through their greatest crisis. He had single-handedly formulated its heavenly rationale. Oh, yeah, and he expanded the Zhou dynasty to unthinkable size and reach. He might as well just be king himself, and dispose of the young and so far useless King Chung, and usurp the throne. And, well, he steps down. And, by the way, under his own virtue, and hands all the power back. Plot twist. This makes him essentially the Chinese version of Cincinnatus. Essentially, a figure who willfully takes control to save the kingdom, only to hand all the power back when he is done fixing everything. And honestly, if he was thinking in the long term, he was a genius. Yeah, in the short term, he's relinquishing all the power. But Duke of Zhou would be revered for thousands of years as the pinnacle example of virtuousness. And his reputation would hand over fist, outshadow that of his brother, which was the dead King Wu, that of the new king, King Cheng, and really any other king for a long time. And in fact, Confucius himself is said to have uttered later in his life that, quote, Oh, how I have gone downhill. It has been such a long time since I have dreamt of Duke of Zhou. End quote. So it's safe to say that if he was thinking in the long term, he did the right thing. He is now one of the most revered people in the history of ancient China. And quickly, I didn't really clarify too much, though, about Duke of Zhou's formulation of the heavenly rationale. What really was that? What did he do? Essentially, instead of the mandate of heaven just being given to one person, i.e. the king, it was instead given to the whole state and all of its people. That was the idea that Duke of Zhou laid out and put forward. And this was a game-changing doctrine, as now, well, the mandate of heaven was viewed through the success and health and prosperity of all the people in the state, not just the health and well-being and virtuousness of the acting ruler. 
So now the ruler or king was not just accountable for himself, well, for maintaining the mandate of heaven. No, now he was accountable for everyone thriving, or else, well, it would slip from his grasp. In 1035, though, Duke of Zhou steps down, and King Cheng finally became the sole ruler of the Zhou dynasty. And he ruled well, and well, uneventfully, until 1003 BC. Whereabouts, again, nothing really eventful happened. Duke of Zhou had set him up pretty nicely, to say the least. But on his deathbed, King Cheng gave a piece of advice, or whatever you want to call it, that would stick with the dynasty for a long, long time. He said, quote, Make pliable those distant, and make capable those near. Pacify and encourage the many countries large and small. End quote. And in 1003 BC, King Cheng died, and passed on power to his son, King Kong. Kong, though, was not too much into the pacification, i.e. conquering part of his dad's wishes, and instead, he was more into the capable and encouraged part, and proceeded to rule over a large and flourishing empire, albeit not expanding one. And in 977 BC, after himself having a long and relatively uncontroversial reign, King Kong himself died. But it was his son and King Kong's grandson that would see sort of the first setbacks of the dynasty. The first 100 years or so of the dynasty got off to a weird start. In fact, it almost never got off the ground. But after Duke of Zhou settled everything, stopped the ship from sinking, King Cheng and his son King Kong ruled without much controversy. Things were good. The empire was the largest it had ever been. But things would only get worse and worse. And there would be setback after setback. Lastly, one thing about these early rulers like King Kong and King Chung is that the Zhou were just not as into writing detailed accounts onto oracle bones, and instead wrote their history on, well, less durable materials. Thus, well, a good amount of what happened is lost forever. But still, as we can tell, a fair bit did still make it down. But the Shang used essentially fossils to write down a lot of their history, and, well, those are easy to survive the long course of history. The Zhou wrote down more than the Shang did, we know that, but not all of it made it down to us. With that, I will wrap up this week's episode. The Zhou are off to a flying start, although it didn't seem like they were going to be, and next week we will dive into the Western Zhou and, well, their hard-nosed dive that will ultimately see invasions and defeats force them to move the whole operation east. But I'm not going to spoil any more. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you all next week on Dorm Room Histories, The History of China. <laughs>